Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is Loretta Greco, the artistic director of the Magic Theater in San Francisco's Fort Mason, and the director of Sweat by Lynn Nottage, which is playing at ACT's Geary Theater. The Resting Place by Ashlyn Halfnight plays at the Magic with previews starting October 10th and it continues through November 4th. Loretta Greco, Sweat runs September 26th to October 21st. How did you get involved in directing the show? So Pam McKinnon and I were talking about a couple of projects for her first season here at ACT, and we'd gone back and forth on a couple of exciting things, and then I got this strange call from her, and she said, okay, just hold everything. What about you opening the season directing Sweat on the Gary stage? One of the things she said is, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to direct something that I couldn't direct in my home theater at Magic, which means something that's already written and something that I can do on the Geary because I love working in that space. And it keeps my muscles strong because it's so different from the beautiful, intimate thrust of the Magic. When she then topped it by having it be lit, Lynn Nottage's Blitzer Prize winning play. It was just, uh, it was beautiful. She started by saying, why don't you do sweat? Yeah. When did this happen? We were talking about this last spring. Pam has been a friend for a long time, and our paths have taken us in very different directions. So when she got this job, I gave her a shout and said, what do you need? I'm so excited. I'm so excited about her joining this Bay Area community. And so we immediately started talking about projects. Had Carrie Perloff been involved or was she long gone by then? I actually don't know if Carrie was involved. My understanding is that Pam planned the whole season. I think Carrie was totally available to help. I think Pam really wanted to plan the season by herself and Carrie was more than happy to, you know, to step aside and move on because she's been so busy as well. She's got a couple of plays coming out, so she's she's Carrie, very busy. I have not been able to see Carrie. She has got a lot of work, and she's moving very quickly, as she always does, so that's exciting as well. Loretta Greco, let's talk about this show, Sweat. When you find out you're going to do it, at that stage, you know the play, you've read it a few times. Uh, do you begin with the casting first? What is the first step? And also, since you have worked at the Geary, what is a specific challenge of the Geary in terms of those early steps? I think that we started working on this scenic world, on this scenic design, and putting together the creative team first. And I'm lucky because I'm doing sweat with my longtime colleague, Andrew Boyce. And Andrew has worked with me at The Magic and at ACT on the Geary. And so we were putting together a team that we thought would bring the most to the play and to make this production for ACT very special. And then we started to think about casting. And Janet and I started working on the local casting first. And that was really fun. And then we started to branch out and see what we needed from New York and Chicago and L.A. And slowly the family 
was put together. The thing about the Geary, Richard, is just that there are very few theaters that have its scope. There are very few Broadway theaters of its scale. And it's the height, it's the depth, it's the width, it's all of it. So this play fills it amply. But we also wanted to work really hard at making sure that scenically the bar, which is where most of sweat unfolds, that that the audience feel like they were also denizens of that bar. And so figuring out what that meant and how to bring everything down while also embracing the height and the depth and so to be able to give the bar some context was really, really fun. I know with the Geary, one of the issues is that if you're in the orchestra, you're looking dead ahead. If you're up on the higher levels, you have to worry about the choreography that only they will see. Yeah, and in this instance, we also have, Drew has designed this beautiful brick surround And in that surround, there are two big billboards that are quite high, but that give us the sense that this little bar is one slice of the bigger community that is Reading. So we thought a lot about, okay, how much more does the mezzanine and the balcony get of these billboards than the orchestra and vice versa? Like how, you know, the thing about the Geary, and and this is something I say every time that I'm here at ACT directing, is when we leave the table and we get up on our feet right before we start to block, I just remind people that as we sketch a ground plan physically, that every time they step out in the first five minutes, they've got to find a few places where they genuinely, authentically, and organically look up and just send something up to the mezzanine and the balcony. Because once you do that, those people are in your pocket for the rest of the evening. If you ignore them the first five minutes, they're off thinking about what they're doing for work, where they're going for a drink after. So we've really been pretty mindful about that. And hopefully that nice transfer from the rehearsal room to the theater will bear the fruits of our work. So you have somebody in those early rehearsals up there and they have to look up and make sure they're there to bring them in. Absolutely. I mean, listen, you've got to be invited to the table, whether it's an intimate 50-seat theater or the beautiful Geary, is you've got to be invited. The way to the soul is through the eyes, right? You, you don't know what's happening in someone's heart unless you can see their eyes. So I'm always saying, this isn't a film. There's no close-up. Get your eyes off the floor and get them up. And it just, it makes all the difference in the world. You connect with the people in the upper reaches of the balcony. They will be yours for the rest of the night. Loretta Greco, Sweat won a Pulitzer and an Obie, which means that it had depth that goes beyond just most plays. It's my understanding that Lynn Nottage did interviews in Reading, PA, among people who later became Trump voters. And in fact, Wall Street Journal said about the play that it may be the best way to understand how a Trump voter thought. The play is really prescient, and I think that Lynn, I'm not sure that she knew exactly what she was getting into when she entered Reading, but what I know is is that she made long, deep lasting relationships with people and she kept listening. And I think the thing that struck her and what struck me in reading about 
Lynn's trajectory of writing the play is that she found in middle-aged white men a vocabulary that sounded very familiar to her because they sounded like disenfranchised African-Americans. And she thought, hmm. So she kept listening. There are a lot of things about this play that are incredibly timely and potent and the, the things that make great theater. But I think one of the things about Why Sweat, Why San Francisco is that, you know, I do think that we all on the coast tend to assume that we know what the typical Trump voter looks like, smells like, what their motivations are. And what Lynn reveals is really a middle class that has been disenfranchised, has been ignored, has been unseen and unheard for a long time before this last election. And so it really is brimming and hits its peak when they get a chance to vote and think that Trump is going to change things for them. The play takes place in this bar, and the people, the inhabitants of the bar, except the bartender, there are people from the steel factory there, racially mixed. One is management, and then there are workers, and somewhere along the line, there are strikes, and it all comes together. Is that pretty much it? Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is, is Lynn has constructed the play so that it bounces between 2000 and 2008. And what you find in 2000 is that this is the early manifestations of NAFTA. And so what you're seeing is a town that has been built entirely on industry, primarily steel and textiles, that that is starting to unravel. You know, it's factory by factory, industry by industry. So at first, as one of the textile mills begins to furlough and lock out its workers, the other workers think that, that they're an anomaly. And what they learn is that actually this is the way of the new world. And so you get to really experience people as they are furloughed. And then to hear of something that now we hear about lockouts quite frequently, but back then it actually was a new mechanism, which is it's the management's way of going on strike. And with NAFTA, they were able to ship some jobs overseas and then really to begin to break down the power of the union. And it was felt heavily in Reading. Reading, this fact drew Lynn to it. It has been touted as the poorest city in the country with a population of over 18,000. And so it was hit hard. So by the time 2008 rolls around, the city doesn't resemble itself. How do you distinguish between the two eras in the play? Through music and through uh, visuals, uh, through video, and hopefully through through the specificity of the acting work as well. So you get to see people transform different clothing, I would guess? Less that. I mean, you know, the nice thing about it is it's working class, so there's not a lot of differentiation. And through the ages, it stays pretty much the same. But through age and through hard living is that, you know, once these people, their opportunities start to um, go away, it it gets tough. And so, yeah, 08 has a, a certain texture to the people that I think will be recognizable, that it's been eight long, hard years. Well, when we think about plays that take place in a bar, we tend to think of Iceman Cometh, though I know that this play has been compared to Odette's. 
I see both comparisons. There is a camaraderie in that bar. The bar is very much like a home to everyone. So in that way as well, is that this is where they come to celebrate. This is where they come to mourn. Their rituals, they work hard and then they play hard and they play hard in this bar. Their grandfathers drank here, their fathers, they drink here, their kids drink here. It's the same within the factories. So there is a shared vocabulary and a love. I mean, in the course of the play, we celebrate three birthdays in the bar. Like this is the place that they call home. And it is cross cultures. And so in that way, I think the just the natural rhythm of the language does resemble Odette's and maybe O'Neill and Iceman Comet the Ad. Do we see the polarization? Does that show its face in the play? What we meet are people that are full of life and full of joy and full of belief in the American dream. These are people that have been brought up on the mantra of, if you work hard, you will receive. And if you work hard and you raise your kids right, they will receive even more and do better than you. And each generation will better itself. And when America's promise begins to fray at the edges, you do see a kind of polarization that has to do with what happens when people begin to divide over how to react when the resources begin to thin out. As a director, when you're working on the scenes that are prescient, do you try to put all of that out of your mind or are you cognizant of it and try to find ways to kind of subtly sneak it in the subtext? The thing about Lynn and the thing about these very human people that she's conjured on the page is that this isn't Noel Coward. There's not a lot of subtext. They say what they're thinking and what they're feeling. The fact is, Richard, is that the characters are so real and so human that for me, we're just digging in and it feels like the humility is on me, is that I made assumptions about who those people were who those people were. And what I found is it's not them, it's us. And so there's not a lot of subtext. So the strategy is pretty much on their sleeve. It's a really, really beautiful piece of work that way. Working with someone else as artistic director and working with, I would assume, a somewhat bigger budget, is it freeing that way to know that you're you know, working that way? Is it scary? I mean, how do you feel about working in this different context than the magic? Yeah, I think because my career was fairly robust and had me working in all size theaters before I took over the magic, I think that what has been beautiful about continuing my work at the Geary is that it keeps me being able to flex that muscle. The relief of not being the producer when I'm directing is I can't even tell you how glorious it is because I can be in the room and I can 100% be in the room. I don't have to be thinking about anything else other than being able to helm as smartly as I possibly can the most robust and beautiful imagining of this play ever. So I don't have to think about payroll. I don't have to think about any of those things. The, the good thing is, 
maybe for the companies that I'm patently aware about how, you know, how to stay in budget and how all those things work. So it doesn't make me any less responsible. But the fact that the buck doesn't stop with me is a joy. (laughs) Speaking of the buck stopping, this is now your 11th year at The Magic. There's only three shows that you're doing at The Magic, and we'll talk a little about each one. The first is The Resting Place by Ashlyn Halfnight. It's a world premiere, but he is quite a well-known writer. He writes for the Bloodline TV series on Netflix. Uh, Looks like he's got his own feature films. What brought you to this play? Ashlyn's agent is a good friend and a usual suspect around magic. And when she sent the script, one of my colleagues had read it before me, um, our associate artistic director, Sonia Fernandez. And Sonia said, I'm not sure it's a magic play. And I read it and I knew what she meant in that it is naturalistic. Time works as time works on your watch and on the clock on the wall. And it has uh, it has a beautiful and contained arc, but the content was so revolutionary to me. And so she and I really talked about it. She loved the play. It's a page turner. It was one of those plays that I read, I, I devoured because it earned my attention. I didn't know Ashlyn. And it was something that neither Sonia and I could stop thinking about. You know, we do try and think about how can we give opportunities to writers who are writing things that are slightly, maybe on the surface, seem more adventurous. But this play and what Ashlyn's trying to talk about, the content, just it wouldn't leave us. So we put it into our Virgin Play series. And and Ashlyn, he is a, a screenwriter as well as he's on a staff, has been on a, a you know, as part of a writer's room for a series. This is his big return to theater, and I don't want him to ever leave it. I'm fine with him doing all the other projects, but he is an astounding playwright. When I was looking at the Magic website, I tried to get a sense of what the play is, and it was so vague, it just said it's about an American family. So we didn't want to give too much away, and when you see it, you will see why. The play is about an American family, and they are in a moment of crisis, and It is a homecoming for the girls. They're returning, the two daughters are returning home. And it has to do with responsibility. I mean, the play is about how we're responsible for one another. They've lost their brother. Their brother has unexpectedly taken his own life. And a lot of things come out about their brother's behavior and actions that have huge communal repercussions. And so that's the point of departure. What the play is really about how we're able as human beings to deny the truth that's right under our noses and to what detriment. And I think that it circles this beautiful idea of how we have to be responsible for one another, how it's actually not enough just to be responsible for ourselves. And that That is especially true when the people we love are behaving badly. The next play, which is in March, world premiere, In Old Age by Mfoniso Udolfia. 
And this is the fifth installment of the Ufat family cycle. She's um, a first-generation Nigerian-American writer. The last one was Sojourners. And I guess when you were working on Sojourners, you knew this would be coming up? We produced Sojourners and Run, Boy, Run in rap two seasons ago. We've been working with Mfaniso since she graduated from ACT, from the conservatory, in our Virgin Play Festivals. And so we wanted to make a, a first commitment to her in production, and we wanted it to really have some impact. So uh, we did both Sojourners and Run Boy together in rap. And then we started looking at uh, In Old Age and talking about that as well as uh, another. This is a beautiful circumstance because Pam McKinnon in her first season in plotting that, she wanted to do Infonisos, her portmanteau. And so we began talking because we had already committed to In Old Age. And so we scheduled them so that you could see her portmanteau, which happens between Run Boy Run and In Old Age. You can see that at the Strand and then come to the Magic and see In Old Age. The main character, Abasiyama, in In Old Age is featured in all four of these plays. So there's a beautiful sense of being inside something that is truly epic and seeing how things turn out. And in old age is Abasiyama when she's, I don't know, 300 years old. <laughs> that almost seems August Wilson-ish. There is something about the cycle and the ambition of the cycle that is I think, an homage to August Wilson. I think the difference is that August's cycle organically began a little bit later in his career, whereas Mfoniso, nobody knew who she was. She was an actress, couldn't get arrested in the beginning. She's an extraordinary actress, and now that's coming along as well. But she started by saying, I'm going to write a nine-play cycle about the Nigerian-American experience. So there's something about that. And Mfoniso has this rich, beautiful sense of humor. This is a story about a woman at the end of her life who meets an African-American man from the South and how they forge a very unlikely relationship. Well, he's a repairman who comes to her house. He's a repairman who her kids have hired because her house is falling apart and they've taken it upon themselves to hire him. They sent him like as a surprise visit to fix her floorboards, to redo her flooring. And they could not be more different human beings. And yet they find that they share something very deep and profound. The third show is Oedipus El Rey by Luis Alfaro. You're directing it. And that was produced at the Magic in 2010, set in South Central L.A. Why go back to a show you've already done? Well, I think that there's something about doing a revival. I mean, you have to have a reason for it, right? And you want to celebrate the things that are great. And traditionally, when we've done revivals, they've been of Sam Shepard's, although we also revived Claire Chafee's Why We Have a Body. So we're always looking for what will speak to an audience now in a new and important way. And I guess the thing with Oedipus is that part of the impetus for his redreaming of the story is about the penal system. 
and about incarceration and about the recidivism rate and about men of color making up most of our system and having a higher rate of going back in. And the play itself, which we premiered nine years ago, has gone all over the country. So it's had over 18 productions. So we also wanted to just reclaim it and remind everybody that it started here while we think it still has an awful lot to say. And in the meantime, there are some actors that did the original that are going to come back. And then there's a whole other group of actors. I mean, you know, we're always looking for work for our family of people. And we have quite a few of our Latino family and we wanted to bring some good work. And so we started to think, what if we revived Oedipus and brought Luis back? and took a second look at it, given 2018, or it will be 2019 by then. What has changed? What has not? And what does it mean to return to the play? Well, the first two plays, Resting Place and In Old Age, being premieres means that while you're working on them, the playwright is there, and he and she are both working with you or the director, whoever, and the actors to change the play. Oedipus, that one, though, it's in print, right? That one's not changing? It's interesting because, yeah, we're Ashlyn and Infonisa are going to be working heavily revising the scripts throughout the process, even through previews up till opening. The interesting thing is it's a different task for Luis and I. Luis has several different versions because it changed a little bit at each stop. And so it's interesting because I think the public was the last stop last spring. And so I've got that script and then I've got our very first script. And so we're combing through it to see where do we find the middle ground and where does that script need to lie back at magic in 2019. And I'm sure it will mean a little bit of sculpting, a little bit of the new from the latest and a little bit of returning to some of the old. I'm sure it'll be a nice balance of each. Loretta Greco, Magic used to have a much bigger season. Now you're down to three shows. What happened? Well, I think actually, Richard, we vacillated. When I first got here, it was six, and that was 08, and we had our big moment, our come-to-Jesus moment financially, all of us, and many theaters closed, and we've been really, really vigilant at keeping the doors open. And so a couple of things have happened. You know, last year we did three productions, but we were also part of co-producing Taylor Mac at The Current. And one of the things that we looked at this year is that we've, we've been trying to expand each year, and we have the last three years expanding our Virgin Play Festival. And so we look at our bandwidth and we look at the amount of people we have on staff and we look at the calendar and we look at our funds and we're just trying to be fiscally prudent. So if we had ample funds and, you know, the pots of gold were running over, we'd maybe have more plays. But we wanted to put the money that we have and the people that we have to use on focusing on the new. Virgin really does look at emerging writers. You'll see a sprinkling of writers like Infoniso and Taylor Mac that come back that are working on new projects for us. But the people that we're bringing in that are new to magic are younger writers. They're writers that we're looking and hoping can be part of the family. And it just has taken, because we do six or seven, so we're working on six or seven new plays in December, we just decided that 
we needed the time. We needed the time in the fall rather than doing two to really dig into that work and those new writers. And so you'll see a little bit more activity around the theater in December than normal. And hopefully it will feel like a full plate. The Virgin Play series is at the Magic, and how many shows are you going to be doing? Right now we're looking at six to seven, but there could be, I mean, we're still, that lineup is still in formation. How many times does a particular play play during that series? Just once? It's just once, and it's a reading, but it's a really special thing because the writer is a piece of it. So the writer introduces the play to the audience and talks about where it came from and where he or she is at with it. So really lets you in, and then afterwards there's a Q&A, and so the audience is really an active part of that. When is it? It runs from December, shoot, I knew you were going to ask me this. It runs from December 2nd through the 16th. Do you ever see Magic Expanding doing stuff at the roof? We opened the season at the roof when The Strand first opened. We did Tanya Barfield's Bright Half-Life, and that was tremendous fun. We've also been in residence at the costume shop. So it just depends when we have a show that feels right, that feels like the thrust stage might not be what the play calls for. And I'm sure Pam and I will be having those conversations in the future. Loretta Greco, one final question. You're directing Sweat now, and you've got... Oedipus El Rey, any other directing coming up for you? I'm working on the second round of Run, Boy, Run with Infamiso. It's going to open New York Theater Workshop season in 2020. We're digging into rewrites of that and are going to be working in a little bit in winter and a little bit in the spring, getting ready to cast and to work on that in the fall. The next season, 2019 to 2020 at The Magic, are you firming up those shows? And will there be just three? We've got a bunch of things in the hopper, and it just depends on the size of things. You know, it depends on the scale of the plays that we we bite off. My hope is that we'll be back to four, and we'll see how that goes.